This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Continuing our series in the book of Proverbs called Wise. Today we're looking at the topic of leadership. There was a story told about a group of tourists in Israel who had been informed by their Israeli tour guide after observing a flock of sheep with their shepherd that shepherds always lead their flocks from the front. He told his attentive listeners that they never drive the sheep from behind A short time later, they drove past a flock along the road where the shepherd was, you guessed it, walking behind them. The tourists quickly called this to their guide's attention. He stopped the bus. He stepped out to have a word with this shepherd. And as he boarded the bus, he had a wry grin on his face and announced to his eager listeners, that wasn't the shepherd, that was the butcher. What if this is a picture of how leadership is supposed to work? From the front, not the back. If so, what characteristics would that leader have to have in order to be able to effectively lead from the front? That's what we're going to look at today as we look at various Proverbs that talk about kings and rulers Kings and rulers in Proverbs are used as case studies in leadership. But the basic principles apply across all forms of leadership, from parenting, to leading a small group, to supervising employees. So regardless of your precise leadership role, there are three noticeable characteristics that enable a leader to effectively lead from the front. Character discernment, and action. Let's look at it. First, character. General Norman Schwarzkopf of Persian Gulf War fame once said, 99% of leadership failures are failures of character. I think the scriptures would agree with them. The primary passages on leadership qualifications in the Bible, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, talk more, a lot more, about character than competence. Proverbs is consistent with that message. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 28. Love and faithfulness keep a king safe. Through love, his throne is made secure. I want to draw your attention to the words love and faithfulness. Those two words are often grouped together and used in the Bible to describe God's relationship to his people. And undergirding these character traits is someone who serves the needs of the people at a cost to oneself. The love and faithfulness of God climax in Jesus' self-sacrifice of himself for the good of his people. So very quickly and very early on, the world's definition of leadership is turned on its head. The greatest leaders are in fact, first and foremost, the greatest servants. Proverbs 16 says, kings detest wrongdoing, 
For a throne is established through righteousness. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. A thr- look at this. A throne is established through righteousness. <laughs> in other words, influence is established through righteousness. When's the last time you heard someone state that righteousness is the core attribute needed in a leader? I do think the Lord is trying to get something across to us we may miss. Genuine influence is established through character. Basically, this proverb is saying that righteousness is the only sure support for a throne, whether that throne is a national leader, a business owner, pastor, parent, small group leader, teacher. Righteousness is the only sure support for a throne. Proverbs 29, verse 4, By justice, a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. So the leader's commitment to justice provides stability for the people he or she is leading. And by the way, when you collect all the Proverbs that talk about kings, rulers, topic of leadership in the book of Proverbs, and when they live out their leadership in the way the book calls them to, over and over and over again, the result is the same. Stability. It's the thing it brings out over and over and over again. Charles Bridges, writing in the 1800s, says, Of what avail are the best laws if they be badly administered? Partiality and injustice absolutely make them null and void. And yet it requires great integrity and moral courage to withstand the temptations of worldly policy and self-interest. Now what I find so interesting, given our current cultural context, is Proverbs' emphasis on character over and above competency and alluring personalities. It's very countercultural. Very countercultural in a society that's enamored with skill and personality. And here in her New York Times bestseller, Susan Cain writes In the culture of character, the ideal self was serious, disciplined, and honorable. What counted was not so much the impression one made on the public as how one behaved in private. The word personality didn't exist in English until the 18th century. And the idea of having a good personality was not widespread until the 20th century. But when they embraced the culture of personality, Americans started to focus on how others perceived them. They became captivated by people who were bold and entertaining. The social role demanded in all, all, of all in the new culture of personality was that of a performer. And Cain argues that over the past couple of centuries, American culture has shifted from the culture of character to the culture of personality. That is, what leaders, what Americans value most are leaders who are charismatic, magnetic personalities. And what she and others argue is that this is not the way it always has been. American culture once possessed a culture of character. How one, how one conducted oneself used to be prized. Warren Sussman, who's a sociologist, has written extensively on this tension between character and style. He went back to read what he calls advice manuals of the 19th century to compare their vocabulary with advice manuals of the 20th century. Basically, these are books on leadership and management. And he found something very interesting. He noted that words like duty, honor, reputation, morals, and integrity began to diminish in this literature in the mid to late 20th century. And words like magnetic, fascinating, stunning, attractive, and energetic began a sharp increase. And his thesis is that what modern culture now craves most is style more than character. This makes being a leader challenging. 
but let's not get out of step with the tune that God is playing in these verses. Even though it may not be culturally fashionable, take it on faith that true influence is established through character. Competency to lead is directly impacted by one's character. And let's not make the mistake of thinking that character is an abstract idea that has no real world impact. I'll give you a story of this Bill Lear, inventor, aviator, business leader. He held more than 150 patents. In 1963, the first Learjet made its debut, and the next year production on the Learjet began. But it was not all roses. Early on, two of his Lears crashed mysteriously. So if you're in a leadership position like he is, and you're going to exemplify character, what are you going to do? Well, he immediately grounded the 55 that he had sold so he could determine the cause. Grounding the 55 planes was incredibly costly, but he went further than that. Doubts were being raised by potential buyers, and so he discovered that he could not determine what caused the fatal crashes without simulating the conditions under which they occurred. So he took his own jet up in the air to try to duplicate the conditions under which the other two had crashed to see if he could figure out what the problem was. And he did this nearly at the cost of his own life. It took him two years to rebuild the business. But he never regretted the decision. He lost money, risked his own life, but he never compromised his character. Character is not an abstract idea. It has real-world consequences. Second, discernment. Proverbs 20, verse 8, when a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all the evil with his eyes. This word winnow, uh, grain, ancient world, two processes to get the grain, threshing and winnowing. Harvested, we just harvested in long stocks. They would smash the ends of it to try to separate the outer husk from the, the seed inside, thrashing, threshing. And then winnowing was taking a pitchfork, throwing it up in the air, letting the wind separate the two. The outer husk is lighter, blow away, the heavier seed would fall to the ground. This is the winnowing the Proverbs writer is talking about. It's separating. So the wisdom writer is saying there's a second mark of leadership, and that's discernment. The skill to be able to separate evil from the good or the wise from the foolish Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. This is another word for discernment. <laughs> What's it saying? It's saying every, something in, uh, intuitively every one of us knows. The intentions or the motivations of a human heart are not easily perceived. Think about King Herod. How was it he was able to initially dupe the Magi into serving as his reconnaissance officers to locate the toddler Jesus? Does a discerning heart bring to light what's really going on behind the request or the statement or the question? Take a positive example. First Kings 3, the very young and new King Solomon. He zigs when others may have zagged. Rather than praying for wealth or power, he instead asked for a discerning heart. A remarkable, remarkable decision, a remarkably mature decision 
to make, and it pleased the Lord. So what happens? The Lord tests him. You know the famous story? Two women, both with newborn sons, one of whom tragically accidentally killed her infant. Each claims that the living child is hers. Solomon's able to cut through the contradictory testimony, expose the hearts of the women, distinguishing good and evil where it was unclear and rendering a just judgment. The intentions or motivations of the human heart are not easily perceived. Solomon knew this. You know something else Solomon knew? (laughs) He knew wisdom wasn't something he could autonomously obtain. He had to ask for it. Imagine this. Imagine the leaders of the world's institutions daily on their knees before the Lord asking for wisdom. Imagine. Leading with wisdom is not about putting in place grueling intellectual exercises, but getting on our knees before the Lord to ask for the gift of seeing the world and life through his eyes. I want to encourage you, challenge you, all those who lead in some way, shape, or form, whether it's in business or government, family, church, or some other circle, pray and ask the Lord daily for wisdom to be and discern in accordance with the blueprint that God gave us here. Now, when leaders lead with discernment, there's something else Proverbs wants us to be aware of. It's in chapter 25. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. These are important words for leaders. Leaders, are you listening? It's saying a leader's way of thinking and deciding may not always be understood and appreciated by those around that leader. Discernment can create this catch-22. Discernment, which is absolutely necessary for Christ-like leadership, may actually result in those around that discerning leader being puzzled by the decisions made by that leader. One leader in higher ed describes it this way. He says, our way of dividing administrative responsibilities of 10 results in a team of specialists, each of whom is passionate, is a passionate advocate for his or her area of concern. At my school, I dealt with student leaders three deans of schools, a board of trustees, a finance officer, and vice presidents for academics, development, and administration. They rightly lobbied for the importance of their divisions. My task was to grasp the overall picture, balance the specific interests, and make sure we all thought long-term and not merely short-range. This is something like what kings, prime ministers, and presidents do, only they do it on a much larger canvas. Those who do not have either the responsibility or information for massive decisions will always be puzzled by those who do. And our text suggests that they should also be humbly appreciative of the magnitude of the tasks that wise leaders perform. Since a leader's way of thinking and deciding may not always be understood and appreciated by those around that leader, How important does it become that leaders be trustworthy by possessing the very kind of character that Proverbs advocates? It makes the whole thing go a lot easier. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Third, action. 
Proverbs chapter 20, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Now, this is not calling for torture. (laughs) Winnowing with the eyes, discerning, and then taking action. Leader has uncanny perception, which allows him to perceive the intentions and motivations of the human heart, but the discernment graduates to action in scattering the wicked, not torturing them. Purging an institution of evil is an outflow of the leader's character. This is what it's graduated to. So commitment to biblical justice doesn't merely result in rightly held views on moral issues. It proceeds to action that aligns the institution with the character of God through addition or deletion. Now, in a complex world, the application of this is not easy. Those of you who lead in business, uh, government, other institutions, the best I can say is saturate yourselves in the word of God. I would say the book of Proverbs is especially important for your role. And plead with the Lord for wisdom each day. But know this, you are meant to act in accordance with what God calls good and just and right. Having biblical views is the first step. Acting on them is the second. Leaders act. Now in the church world where the scriptures provide an abundance of guidance, we can find examples of discernment graduating into action in scattering the wicked all over the place. In Corinth, there was a man who was in a sexual relationship with his stepmom. All the while professing to be a follower of Christ and actively participating in the life of the church with an unrepentant heart. It's one of several texts that spell out for us what holy sexuality is. A good gift to be enjoyed within the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. And so what does Paul say to the leaders of the church? How do you handle this? He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. The good thing to do, the just thing to do, the right thing to do is to remove the man from the church. It's not always easy. In Thessalonica, there were those within the church who were sluggards. They didn't work. Paul says, lovingly warned them, but if they don't change course, don't associate with them. On the island of Crete, Titus was dealing with people who were divisive in the church. So Paul tells tells, uh, Titus, warn them once, If they don't implement a course correction, have nothing to do with them. Leaders take action. Now, on the individual level, think of it this way. Your heart, mind, and life are the Garden of Eden. What's allowed entrance and what's not? One of the questions I've asked of that famous scene in Genesis 3 is how the serpent got inside the Garden of Eden to begin with. What's he doing there? It's paradise. What's he doing there? I think the most convincing answer is that Adam and Eve let him in. The charge God gave them was to work it and keep it, work it and guard it. They were supposed to be serpent bouncers. But they whiffed on the fastball, and he sneaked by, and they didn't do the next best thing and expel him from the garden. Well, I find it very difficult someone here doesn't lead others in some way, shape, or form. You do practice self-leadership, whether you realize that or not. Your heart, mind, and life are sacred. 
what's allowed entrance and what's not? Is there some evil that's been allowed entrance that needs to be expelled? Sexual impurity, greed, jealousy, pride, undisciplined habits. Leadership, including self-leadership, requires action. So leaders discern problems, whether they're matters of good and evil or wisdom and foolishness. They discern these, and then they act. Character, discernment, action. The attributes needed to lead from the front rather than drive from the back. Now, when you think about the ultimate leader, hopefully your mind is drawn immediately to Jesus. The unchanging, blemish-free character of God in human form on display for all to see. The essence of righteousness. He was able to read people and discern situations drill down past appearances and get to the reality of it all. One asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's something that stands between you and me. It's your ultimate loyalty to your stuff. Another person asked the very same question, but he gives them a very different response. He tells him to love his neighbor, including the physical well-being of a hated enemy. And yet another, the history of her love life that left her battered, bruised, and empty. He knew when to speak. He knew when to remain silent. He knew when to make a statement and when to ask a question. And of course, his whole purpose in coming to dwell among us was leadership in action of a sort none of us would ever want. He left his throne in paradise, eternally occupied in eternity past, where he had never experienced thirst or splinters or pain of any kind. And he came to live in a world where things are not the way he made them to be. A shock to the system, I'm sure. And he endured this not for a weekend but for 30 plus years. Also, he could hand you a gift. The gift of your sin debt paid for and a positive balance deposited in the account. When you look at Jesus, you see character, discernment, and action. Incomparable, unequaled, unmatched. On the one hand, no one will ever lead like Jesus. On the other, if you are in Christ by faith, Christ is in you. Working in you to lead as he led. Yield to him. Claw and scratch to get more of him. Unwaveringly set your gaze upon him. Listen, our world, our nation, our churches, and our homes need more of these kinds of leaders. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for that.
leadership is built into how you made the world. And you call all of us into leadership of some sort. Might be in government, might be in business, might be in the home, might be within a social circle. Every one of us has been charged to lead. So I pray that we would take our cues from your word. We want to lead from the front. We don't want to drive from the back. In order to do that, God, I pray that you would form in us the character of Christ, the discernment of Christ that leads to the actions of Christ. We know we're not on our own. We're not trying to make this work through the latest leadership techniques, gurus. That's not the answer. The way to lead is to tap into the fact that Jesus, you are in us. I pray that by your power and authority alone, you would show us to lead like you led. Do it for your glory and the good of your people. In your name we pray. Amen.